Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Well, welcome to the Grand Illusion, folks. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And on this show, since September 11th of last year, we've talked to seasteaders. We've talked to Bitcoin enthusiasts and chroniclers of this new technology. We've talked to 84 and Brandon and Boyfriend recently and Mr. Spotlow. Talked to Baron Coleman. I had Sarah Thornton, Greg Thornton, all these people from the fine arts to cutting-edge technologies and people close to me. But I was listening to this, The Grand Illusion, and uh, I like to read the lyrics and the liners. And number one, this song is amazing. The insight to it, I don't know if Dennis took his own advice, though. And uh, I'm reading the bottom of this, and it says, Produced by Sticks, and under special thanks, it says, The folks at John's Just Music, Gary Lazio, Tom Short, and then there's a name that I find familiar. Greg Budell. And yes, it has been a grand illusion. Welcome to the show, our secret special guest, Greg Budell. I'm just trying to figure out how you and I are going to get out of this building alive <laughs> after we've been telling this giant fib for a week about this amazing guest and people that have changed their plans and rearranged their days to make sure, I don't want to miss this. Joey's got somebody really special coming out at 6 o'clock tonight. He won't even tell Budell who it is. But you deserve it. You deserve the change of plans. All these things. You deserve it. But I want to start with, because we all have heard a lot of the lame-ass stories. We've heard uh, a lot of poignant stories from you. This is a trick of what you do with your uh, radio style and your career. And, you know, I've worked with you for now five, six years now. At least, yeah. Um, and I'm literally, I was reading the lyrics from some of the songs here off Grand Illusion, 1977, mm -hmm. album of the day today. And first off, Grand Illusion, the lyrics, uh, essentially the point is, all this fame you see, don't, let the, don't be fooled by the radio, the TV, or the magazines. It's somebody else's fantasy. This is in 77. You've found some success in radio before that. Oh, yeah. But you hit it really big in Miami after that, right? Yes. In fact, it was during the release of this album that I left the band. Mm. Now, I can applaud myself because... My thinking at the time was, and there were, n none of us were making a particularly big salary, the, including the band members. Uh, we had been through a lot of hardship, a lot of weeks where there was no money when they were transitioning from their first crappy Chicago record label, the one that they wouldn't nickel. They did Lady. That's the song that put them on the national chart and got them the attention of A&M Records. 
And, uh, but when I'd been with them with the release, the first release with A&M was Equinox. That was followed by what I thought was a pretty mediocre album for them, Crystal Ball. I can say yeah. that now. Uh, couldn't say it then. They, and my job in part was to promote the singles from those albums to radio stations. And with that album, I could not promote the singles they released with great enthusiasm. One of them was Light Up. And the they thought it was clever. I thought it was like, could you be any more obvious? It was about smoking pot. Yeah. Light up and be happy. I also thought it was kind of a juvenile sounding tune. Right. I can say that now. Um, but at the time, you got to sell it. Well, you got to call radio stations, including people like Larry Stevens, who was running WHHY here, and say, hey, how about getting on this? And, and they're telling me... Um, we're not un we're not comfortable with the the theme of this song. Remember, it's 1977, and you could walk into a Chicago courtroom with a suitcase full of pot. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that story to testify in a murder trial. But uh, radio stations were ultra ultra conservative about lyrics, you know. And there were songs like "One Toke Over the Line" by Brewer and Shipley that some stations would never play, hmm. and others. So that was a very, very difficult album and the single to promote. Uh, I thought Grand Illusion was a much better album, but keep in mind, I'm working in Chicago radio uh, while I'm working with the band. I, that's how I cobbled together a livable wage. And in early 1977, I was invited by... Jay Blackburn, who was the new program director of a radio station that was coming on the air called WLUP, The Loop. It was replacing WSDM, which was an all-female jock station. It was kind of a phenomenon, yeah. but it was one of those, it, it was almost a fad, you know, okay, so there, you got all these women that are doing all the shows. It was sort of unique at the time, but um, get the album out, and I honestly reached a point where I thought, you know what? I've had a radio dream now since high school. I had just turned 25 years old, and I wanted to be a star. So my effort had slacked off. JY uh, from the band was, was honest with me. They weren't particularly happy with the, the results I was getting. Right. So we just sort of parted ways. Now, that didn't mean I was instantly successful in radio. I did work a couple of additional Chicago gigs, a morning show. My last job was a morning show on a disco station. <laughs> disco was taking over radio in the late 70s. And I had the unique experience of being the first white jock on WVON, call letters which stood for Voice of the Negro. This is, oh, wow. a, this is a legacy black radio station in Chicago. And GCI, the disco station, and VON were owned by the same company. And an illness swept the building. And the VON jocks were getting hit really hard. So the general manager and program director approached me and said, look, we need somebody to do overnights. This is when live overnight radio actually happened. Can you fill in? Well, yeah. And first of all, the FM, the, the disco station, wasn't union. But WVON was. So, and I was a member of AFTRA, which is the American Federation of Television Radio Artists. So, uh, you got 125 bucks a shift. Wow. 
for filling in, which was really especially then <laughs> good money. It's good yeah. money now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I never sneezed that because look, I, I I made what I always call stupid money when I was making more than I could spend or spend responsibly, and then I lived abject poverty. I know what it's like like to beg for a dollar in a gas station trying to get on a bus. Right. So I've been on both sides of the coin. So, uh, but when did I'm um, the dream? When did you? Well, real, when did you think I've accomplished my radio dream? Well, here's what happened. Um, I, I did uh, six weeks of both the disco and and, and WVON, and uh, after that, this is early 1979. Barry Mayo, who was the program director, and eventually went on to New York to work for RKO, the same company I wound up with said, um, there are going to be some changes coming down in a month or so. And I said, I'm just trying to be your friend and give you a heads up, but you're not part of the future plan. So in other words, you're going to be fired, but you've got time to look now while you're still employed. And again, so it's another setback. And I wasn't being allowed to do anything. Right. I wanted to be a freaking Larry Lujak. Yeah. So I made a decision. I, I had refused to leave Chicago up till that point. But I, I just was so fed up because the, the guys that would come into Chicago to program stations were coming in from other markets and they bring their buddies with. And none of them knew anything about Chicago or how the city worked. So I said, I'll go wherever I have to go and do whatever I got to do to get successful enough to come back here and stick it up somebody's ass. Well, uh, the first offer that came along was Fort Lauderdale with a disco station down there. And I said, I'm going. Yeah. And I went down there with $40 and my dad's shell credit card and my Corvette with the white body and the black butt and uh, found myself. I just drove by this building. I was pointing it out to Mrs. Britterbuttle when we were down in Florida, this two-story granite piece of crap next to the Florida Turnpike. That's where it all started. And uh, so I'm going from uh, Michigan Avenue in Chicago to the edge of a golf course on, what the hell's the name of the road? Um, Rock Island Road. Not near the beach. We're miles from the, near anything that would be fun. Right. Well, and this is where you are, climb up the steps, as we, folks who listen. The uh, dog frog story. The dog frog. So, and I went down there, they initially offered me 160 bucks a week, and I negotiated it up to 180 plus a $300 bonus and a month at a hotel which was nice they put me in the uh, Hilton on the beach which wasn't bad and then I wound up working as a, a disco DJ in the bar in that hotel for $50 wow a night so but this disco station I went down to work at was a disaster so I took a big step backward before I accomplished anything and I don't know where we're at on time. I don't know, but the next step, I'm looking for when... When did you think, I've made it? Uh, right after that? About three years later. Yeah. About three years later, I eventually... When I, I was fired so fast after I started at this horrible place because I drank every day. I was late to work every day. The overnight person on that station eventually became my best friend of through life, Kathleen, that I stay with when I go down there. She understood. She had worked in Chicago and Phoenix, so she knew why I was so despondent leaving Chicago to come and work at this crap station. There two months, I'm out of a job. 
and she said, uh, she throws the phone book at me and says, op- it's open to radio stations and broadcasting companies and says, start dialing. Yeah. You can't go back to Chicago after two months and say it didn't work out. So for once I did what I was told and I'm going down the list, WWWL, what the hell is that? So I called it and said, may I speak to the program director, please? Big buttery voice comes on the line and says, hello. I introduced myself and I was honest. I said, my name's Greg Goodell. I'm down here from Chicago. I, I took a gig at K102 and it was a disaster. So I'd like to find another shot here in the market. He says, well, okay, bring your cassette down, an air check down, and we'll talk. I had one tape. Right. I never saved air checks. I'm the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, today, you know, there's podcasts. You can tell anybody, you can listen to as much as they want. Air checks were usually five minutes of somebody's greatest work, and oftentimes the five best minutes they'll ever do. Right. So... He listened to a couple of breaks. Okay, you're good. Uh, I'll come in and do Saturday and Sunday afternoon, but come in Wednesday night and train. So I did that. I was running the board. Um, did Saturday afternoon. Sunday afternoon, the studio door blows open as only the buttery one can make it do. Oh, yes. And he says, you're good. I'm going to fire the morning man and give you his gig. Yeah. Now, so I went in the space of a couple of weeks, less than two weeks from being out of my ass to getting a better morning gig on a station that actually had listeners. K-102 had a .3 total audience. Hmm. That's microscopic. I told yeah. you the story about the watches. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, so financially, and then I, it took a few months to convince him and, and, and to put me together with another guy that I thought would make a good partner. And once he and I got started, we took off. We were uh, the word of mouth sensation yeah. down there. This is late 79 and, and turning the corner into 1980. By that time, though, I realized I wanted to work at Waxy 106 because they played oldies. It was very up-tempo. It's fun-sounding station. And uh, a year to the day that I was hired at Love 94 by the Buttery One, I left to go to work for Waxy. Now, that didn't mean I made it. I was where I wanted to be. Right. The funniest thing is, I used to, you know, jocks would, we, you know, we'd spend the whole day at the station. That was our social outpost. And one day I said, I think you could make 30000 a year down here and they all laughed at me I mean they mocked the bejeevers out of me for making such a ridiculous only Bill Tanner's ever gonna make that much here <laughs> what are you out of your mind don't you dare dream and and we'd see each other in the hall and, and they'd, they'd look at me instead of saying well, it's, I want 30 give me 30 goodness well uh, through a whole sequence of unusual circumstances I, I end up meeting with Rick Shaw, the guy whose memorial I attended last year. And their morning man had been fired because he did a 21 blowhole salute to a dead whale. (laughs) And the general manager of the station had a very scatologically, you know, just, you can't do that. That's kind of a funny, like, premise, though. It was. I admit that readily, but... uh, You never know. When you go to work and, and, and you're told... This is acceptable and this isn't. And then you break policy. Yeah. You put your job on the line. He lost it. So I sit with Rick. We go and get have a few cocktails at a 
jazz bar that's long gone. And uh, she says, okay, uh, <laughs> we'll get back to you. I don't know. He didn't say. So uh, the next day was a Thursday. And on Thursday nights, I bowled at a place called the Fairlanes. It was my, I was trying to meet, make friends, get, you know, better at bowling. So I'm, I'm getting ready to walk out the door. I've got my bowling ball in hand, and the phone rings. And, of course, there's no cell phones. This is a landline. I pick it up, and I say hello, and he says, Hey, <laughs> it's Ricky Dicky. Uh, we'd like you to come and do mornings for us. How does 25000 a year sound? Well, I'm not making this up. The ball slid out of my hand and landed on my foot. <laughs> I, I was so dumbstruck by that number, which was about 9000 a year more than I was making. I didn't respond quickly, and he says, tell you what, we'll make it thirty, and we'll add some bonuses. Wow. Done deal. So at that point, I thought, man, now things are starting to happen. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I got back at everybody at Love who mocked me right. for thinking you could make that kind of money. But it was a couple of years later... Uh, now, in those days, the crazier you were, the more in demand you were. And um, uh, in order to lock me up, and they knew I was drinking and, and I was an easy mark, they had me sign a contract that paid a total of $160,000 over three years. This is 1981, two, and three, somewhere in there. Okay. That was big money. Yeah. Rick Shaw. A thousand dollars a week. <laughs> you know, so uh, at that point, I had security. I was making good money. And that's when I felt, okay. I've made it. Yeah. But here's why I wanted you to kind of recap that story. Well, it took a me 20 bit. minutes to tell a five, one question. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I asked. It's because I find it interesting that as you're leaving this band we started off the show with, yes. the first song we play is, and you've lived this life after you've made it, before you made it, you've, you've been dirt poor, out on your ass as you put it, yeah. you've been in sky rises, you've had nice cars, you've done all these things. Is it a grand illusion? Fame, the sort of making it, that and here's what another way I could put it, like when you were messed up and you would see all the admiration from fans down there. I'm sure you would get a rush off that, but I imagine it's a little bit different of a rush than say when you go to the Christmas parade in Wetumpka. Let me tell you a brief lame-ass story. March second, nineteen seventy-nine. I haven't done. I haven't even been really to to K one hundred two. On that Sunday, I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel they put me up in having lunch, and I'm looking out at the ocean. I got the Sunday Miami Herald, and in my head, I said, they're going to be writing about me in a year, in one year. That's, I went down, I was fully confident I could make this happen. Well, almost a year to the day. Yes, they were. I had more newspaper coverage than I could have possibly dreamed about. And my goal was to become a household name. I wanted to be the next Larry Lujak. And I did it. And I did it at a level so far and above. See, in those days, RKO, they, you know, when they, everybody had to compete. So they hired a talent, and if they supported the talent, they made TV 
spots. Right, yeah. They were literally 30-second mini-movies that cost a lot of money to produce, and they'd spend three or four hundred grand putting them on TV. And it got to the point where I saw myself on TV so much, I was embarrassed. Mm. I would turn it off when I'd see one of my spots come on, because I was enough already. And the day I found out I was famous, uh, have you want to hear this? Yes, I do. I'm in Pompano Beach, not far from where Jane and uh, Alan and I and Roz had dinner. And a little old lady comes up to me on the street and says, are you the television man? I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, aren't you on the TV? <laughs> yes, ma'am, I'm on a TV commercial. She said, would you open your mouth? Okay, so I open my mouth and she stands on her tippy toes and lifts up her leather gray arm, pulls my lower, puts it on my chin, pulls my mouth down and looks in. She said, you know, I can see the fillings in your teeth on TV and I just wanted to see if they were real. <laughs> but that was the first time that somebody had seen me enough on TV and so that's that was the first contact with it and it... Fame is, uh, I understand why people want it. I wanted it. I craved it. Yeah. And I got it in a quantity I could have never imagined. But it is not. Didn't make you happy. Oh, no. Mm. no. It was almost like a drug itself. Have I ever told you about the greatest buzz I ever had in my life? No. It's 1982, I think. I'm with Waxy. I had just uh, visited a female friend in Miami. I was driving back Interstate 95, and I'm next to the Fort Lauderdale Airport, northbound. And it was a real congested and difficult area to navigate in those days. And out of my, off to the left, I see this big brown billboard, and I thought I saw my name on it. And the closer I got, I realized... In gold letters on this brown billboard, it said, there's a nut loose in your radio. Greg Budell in the morning, Waxy 106. Joey, I don't think I've ever had a greater euphoria than that moment, chemically or any other way. Today, I openly admit, I drove around the airport, and it took about 20 minutes to make each circuit so I could keep seeing it. And the more I saw it, the higher I got. And it felt great. But like any drug that's addictive, and it's addictive because you do feel good when you first use it, gives you a power of feeling you can't get on your own. I got used to it. Right. I got used to having billboards and TV commercials and all this stuff. It was never enough. So you, wanted, you kept chasing the dragon, as some might say. You kept chasing it, chasing it. Well, I, I, in 1984, on May 10th, I learned the downside of fame. In a big way. The downside. The downside of being famous. Do we have time for that now? Yeah, well, essentially, when something bad happened, yeah, everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, up to that point, I was the Pex bad boy of South Florida. That was my reputation. And that was cool. You know, I was in my late 20s. Well, I, you know, nothing wrong with that. Um... And then one night I took this lady out to dinner at an Italian restaurant and drank a couple of, you know, see, with, with alcoholics, 
We don't understand it when people leave wine on the table. Right. Yeah. Somebody orders a carafe, they finish their dinner, there's still some in there, and I think, you know, what's wrong with you? I'm, so I, I drank a couple of very full glasses of wine. The people had left. No, no, no. They, oh, they, they we had ordered. Okay. We had ordered. I was about to say, it's that bad. And uh, <laughs> no, I wasn't stealing empty wines off other people's table. I hadn't quite gotten that bad yet. But it can get bad. You're right. Oh, yeah. Um, so we had a pretty heavy dinner. I wasn't going to her place. I wasn't interested in that that night and as i'm driving down federal highway i start to feel nauseous really nauseous and so there's no uh turn lane or anything so i saw the driveway of a car dealership and i pulled up into that put the car in park and got out and up chucked everywhere i mean everything i ate and drank was gone and i sat back in the car and passed out the rear end of my vet, which, of course, is all part of the fame and glory thing, was projecting about six, eight inches over the curb into Federal Highway. Oh. So it was kind of a hazard. And a cop finally pulled up next to me to see why this car was in this odd position. And he says, have you been drinking? And I said, well, I had some wine with my dinner, but I'm parked this way because I got sick. And he looks and he says, your keys are still in the ignition. So you're under arrest for drunk driving. <sighs> and um, <laughs> so Greg Budell, the next morning I've got an actual Broward County judge scheduled as a guest on my show, a guy named Steve Shutter, who was very funny in court. And uh, I get, you know, the bracelets, it hurts. My car is towed away. Uh it's finally like 6.15 or 6.30 in the morning when I get to make my phone call. So I called the station. Kenny Lee answered the phone. He wasn't particularly happy to hear from me calling from jail. I said, ask Judge Shutter if there's something he can do. And uh, I heard Kenny say, hey, Greg's in Broward Jail. He's locked up out of DUI. Can you help him? And he said, no. <laughs> so somebody, I don't know who bailed me out, by the time I got my car out of the compound, the towing thing, and got back to the house I was staying at, it was separated from my crazy-ass second wife, um, it was about 10 minutes to noon. And I'm thinking, geez, I wonder if this has made the news. Right. So I turn on Channel 10, which is the big station. On comes Ann Bishop. Our top story, popular South Florida disc jockey Greg Bidell was arrested for DUI last night, his car was pound, found parked, protruding into Federal Highway, and, and oh my God, I, I was so embarrassed and so ashamed. And uh, to this day, there are people that remember that damn story. Wow. They always remember the worst. Well, and they, yeah, they remember when you screw up. I mean, it's like when we can't remember something on air. And what I find amazing about your story, and this is just a little bit of your life. I mean, we've gone very quickly over several years, but I, I find it amazing. You literally lived the sex, drugs, rock and roll life. Oh, yeah. And yet... Every, every bit is... Uh, I'm not saying I'm uh, Mick Jagger. But I certainly lived it as well as most do. Well, and like you said, it can be euphoric. It can be a wild ride. I'm sure there are some still sweet memories in the midst of that craziness. Here's the thing. You 
this is not an excuse. This is an explanation I came to understand that you have to pursue that success at a level to the exclusion of everything else, including your own personal growth. So you may have grown this great career. You may have made written a bunch of hit songs. But yourself, you're, you're high on what you've accomplished, but you don't know who the hell you are. And that's the downside. And that began catching up to me pretty quickly. So, but it, uh, that was the first real consequence. Here's the thing. The station hired a lawyer. They took care of it. They supported me on the public media and the newspapers and just said, shut your mouth and don't say anything about it and we'll, we'll get it fixed. But it's just... I, and when we come back, we had to hit a quick break. It's just amazing to me that uh, what, what the things that actually matter... Yeah. You accomplished a goal, but maybe it wasn't the right goal. No. So we'll be right back. It's amazing to me also that uh, <laughs> this was almost like a warning as you were leaving. Welcome back. That's cool. <laughs> You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My special guest tonight is the one, the only, Greg Budell. <clears throat> and where we left off, Greg, it, I, I kind of want to downshift here. Um, but on a, a very personal note, this surprised me this morning. Mm. I really did listen to all of the Grand Illusion album. And when this song came on, I've heard it before, obviously. I started crying. Because I was reading the lyrics, and it's, you see the world through your cynical eyes. And, like, it hit me, like, stop being so miserable yourself, Joey, at the age <laughs> 29. And just the way it's written, it hit me even harder that Tommy Shaw is the guy who wrote the lyrics and the music to yeah. this. He's from Montgomery, wrote it in 77. So That whole part of the story still freaks me out. It's crazy. And so I'm like a song 40 years old, I guess. Yeah. That's hard to. That freaks me out too. And that's him playing guitar there, and he used to play down Kegler's Cove, and it's like hitting me today in 2018. I'm sitting here sobbing, uh, but I think he wrote it initially about Dennis, and then later in life he said, "Okay, I realized more and more this song was also about me." But at the time, let me just say this: Dennis DeYoung is a genius. But he's a pain in the ass. He is a his nickname behind his back was Primo. Yes, as in Primo Donna. And uh, you know, here they they kick out my best friend of the band, JC. That happened in '76. They're changing record labels. There's no money. Then Dennis decides to have a nervous breakdown. Mm. Well, it'll be months before they can tour or play in the studio. It's just getting worse and worse. Fortunately, I was doing a lot of radio, so I had some income. Uh, then finally, the A&M deal came together, and all the legal stuff was resolved, and things were turning around and looking good again. Um, but Dennis... Dennis... Uh, just, I don't know. I, I, I liked him personally, and I spent a lot of time with him privately. He, I'll never forget, 
He said, what do you think we need to do to, you know, we, we, they were in kind of a slump. Hadn't had a real big hit. And I said, you need to find another song like Lady that had tremendous female appeal. I said, because women are what radio stations, that's their primary demographic. Right. And so I would work along those lines. Now, I'd left the band, but he had already been working on um, Babe, which when you listen to it is not a major step away from Lady. It's different enough. It doesn't sound like it. In those days, bands would have a hit, and their next record would sound just like the hit they just had, and that would be it. One hit wonder. So, uh, but Tommy Shaw saved the band. There's no right. question about that when he brought an enormity of talent and uh, skill. And, and J.Y., he was the guy that, you know, masterminded everything. He was the businessman of the band. He still is. Right. And I never appreciated his brilliance until they came back to town and I had the greatest, one of the greatest nights of my life here right. when uh, they were coming to the fair and I was asked to go out on stage ahead of him, ahead of him, and ahead of time. And I was so nervous because I hadn't seen any of them in, in over three decades. And we did not part on, on the best of terms. So I don't know how, but Tommy came flying out of a room and hugged me. Because I was the guy when Tommy was hired to replace JC and it took one day. So they had been scouting him. One day. And uh, Dennis calls me up and says, I need you to go to O'Hare and pick up Tommy Shaw. He's, uh, he's replacing JC. I said, well, I don't know. And we didn't have internet, cell phones. Send me a picture of him so I know who I'm looking for. Uh, he said, just hold up a sign. So I made a sign that said Shaw. And But when the, when the Delta flight was emptying at O'Hare Airport, because you could go all the way to the gate in those days. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't need a sign or anything else. When Tommy walked off the plane, he was the rock star. And uh, so I just went and said, Tommy? I said, I'm Greg. I'm here to take you to Dennis's house. And what I remember most about, because that was a long drive. That was about 60 miles from O'Hare to Den Dennis's house. Um, what I remember the most is I don't think Tommy blinked once the entire trip because this all happened so fast. And like you said, when you go to Kegler's clothes, and no, it's humble. Yeah. humble. And you've been playing there and, and other places around town. And now, all of a sudden, you're joining Sticks. Right. That's, I can only begin to imagine what a head spinner that was. And then you go on to write some of their biggest hits. But I, I want to, again, downshift to, you've told a lot of these stories over the years. Um, I've enjoyed hearing them. As much as we joke about lame-ass stories, <laughs> it's amazing. I want to kind of get your perspective, and we could take it this way, from when you are able to see the guys recently, see Sticks. Yeah. But generally, when you look back, you're able to tell these stories. I mean, you just had this incredible weekend. Like, things are coming together. Life has been put back together. Amazing. And you realized, I'm sure, at a certain point in your life, because you're here, that you couldn't go back to the same old well you'd been going to for whatever made you feel good because yeah. it wasn't fulfilling. And so, if you had to look back now, being able to tell these stories, being able to have this great now new career, I guess, in Montgomery or end of career. Uh, you know what I realized in Florida? I have been here as long as I was in Florida. This weekend you realize this. Yeah, that, that I've been in Montgomery about the same amount of time I was in South Florida when the radio industry went into convulsive changes. 
And that blew my mind that the, the amounts of time were equal. And I just hope God gives me enough time to where I can live to see the end of my current contract and maybe kind of hang on to replace you on your vacations and yeah. stuff. Well, I'm, I'm asking, so I, I guess, as advice, uh, because I've, I've been getting better. I've gone through a change in the last few months, I think, where I don't feel as uh, cynical, as misanthropic. When I get angry, it's mostly for show. Um, I don't what, know about that. <laughs> but what would you, to, for lack of a better word, what advice would you give to an angry young man who life's, you know, played a pretty bad hand at times, things out of my control, sure. some self-inflicted? Yeah. What are the things that actually matter? It's not the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, though that stuff's fun. What would you say gives you the most peace of mind when you put your head down? Well, Joey, I, I got everything I wanted. I, I had the fame. Uh, I was going to the bank every other week with a take-home check, about six thousand four hundred dollars, which would be like taking twelve thousand or more dollars home every two weeks today. Yeah, and I'd go to the deposit. Well, I've always looked for the hottest teller because I wanted her to see. Yeah, look at all this. Yeah, isn't that sick? It is, <laughs> but it's true. I'd probably do the same thing. But um, uh, there was always something missing. It just didn't feel right. And the, the reason for that, and I really had to have my ass kicked over and over and over again to figure it out, was I did not believe I deserved it. I'd earned it, but I didn't believe I deserved it. Mm. And that's what I had to work on. And when you are getting something you don't deserve, you'll eventually sabotage the thing and make the requisite mistakes so it's taken away from you. So... I went from those $6,000 take-home checks to begging for a buck in a gas station so I could get back to the three-quarter warehouse I was living in. So... Well, it goes back to those folks saying, you think you deserve 30. <laughs> and so you even, like, though it's not maybe explicit, you're probably going, I, I feel like a fraud. Or not a fraud, but more like, I can't, this seems like a dream. At times it all seemed... Like it also was, it was just very easy. But the the truth of the matter was, I was given the opportunity I wanted and wouldn't and couldn't get in Chicago. And here's the ironic part: 1986, Larry Lujak's agent is now my agent. They recruited me. Saul Foos was the guy's name. And I he approached me about a job that was open in Chicago. So they flew me up there on a Saturday, and, and I blew away the GM and the program director with my knowledge of the city, the intimate parts, the things that somebody that really knows Chicago can tell you. And really to, to tell them, look, there's a big city west of the Wacker Drive and the river here. That's where most of the people live. And that's the part that, that a lot of you guys never seem to understand. This is a city of neighborhoods. Yes. Well, they loved it. Day later, Saul calls after I'm back in Miami. And he says, well, they want you. They uh, offered you. They put together a deal that's worth $2 million. If you hit all the bonuses, they plugged into a contract that pays you a base salary of what you're making in Miami. And then he says, I just told him no. We're not interested. And that was probably a good move. Um, because when I did get back to Chicago, and I'm proud that I got the chance to work on WLS, I had a horrifying experience. It's 13 years after I'd left to go to Florida, 
and I go back and I get to open the mic and say WLS. Yeah. I was wanted there. You're Larry Lujak. That was a very euphoric experience. And I got hired. I got hired over John Records, Landecker, and a whole bunch of other people that were up for that shift. And after I got up there, and it's about two weeks had passed, and, and I'm something's wrong. Something just doesn't feel right about any of this dream gig stuff. Hmm. And I realized, this isn't my city anymore. I'm a Florida guy. Who are these crazy people that all look like Mike Ditka? <laughs> Even the women. This the the city looks like a, 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 a menagerie of bowling teams that comes together downtown, and uh, I I didn't like it. Yeah, I was not comfortable in a place I had spent the first twenty seven years. Twenty actually not that many. Twenty five years of my life. So this is bad. Then at WLS, I wasn't really allowed to do the kind of radio I did in Florida. They wanted all this topical political crap <laughs> that we don't do. Well, but it's a, this is. <laughs> but we well, our country a, was not at stake. We're talking about corrupt aldermen and. And then the beautiful thing also about where we work is the buttery one doesn't micromanage us. No, no, but they did. There, I'll never forget April twenty first, nineteen ninety two. It's the 25th anniversary of the Oakland tornado, and I go to my boss, Drew Hayes. He was a nice guy. I said, I'm going to tell my story. This is a big event. I said, this was huge because hundreds of thousands of people saw not only the tornado I did, but the one that was on the north side. A lot of people were killed that day. And I wanted to devote the show to that. And he said, you're nuts. He said, you're going to get no calls and blah, blah, blah. Well, I did the show. But go ahead, he says, you know, I'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. <laughs> By the time I got my lame-ass story done at 7.20, I was on at night from 7 to 9. By the time I got to 7.20, all 10 of my lines were lit. Yep. At the end of the show, we were able to conference call three women who were on the same school bus in the Belvedere tornado on the north side of the city who were on a bus that was hit by that tornado and a, a couple of people that were on the bus with them were killed. And these three women are on the phone together crying 25 years later, bringing back all of the horror, the fear of that event. And it was maybe one of the top five shows I ever did. And I didn't have to stick it up Drew's butt the next day. He knew. Um, and my producer told him we'd never have more calls on any show that I can recall. Um, those are the kinds of things that I, I like to do, and I just didn't feel like I had the support. Well, and I've, I've learned that from you, and, and being completely honest, um, this past year, when we went away from, because there's plenty to talk about politically, Yeah. but when we went away from that, and like the things with Keith and Sherry, and seeing yeah. the, out, not, and I'm not just talking about what you did, but the platform you gave to all these folks who, like shocked i think us though we shouldn't have been shocked and what i'm hearing here is like it's the making an actual personal connection mm -hmm. with the community and the audience it's it's not about sitting in front of whatever microphone and saying wls as much as you fulfilling a, a childhood dream is amazing it's more about how are you connecting with people each and every day it's not about making it hitting a certain summit it's about what are you doing every day 
You wake up and you do the right thing. If I were advising a young radio person who wanted to build a following, my advice would be do not try to convince them how cool you are. I've never been cool. I was perceived that way, but I know me well enough to know I was not born cool. uh, The only time (laughs) I was cool was when I was high. And of course, after a while, that doesn't work. Um, So you lose that disguise. So my advice is share your warts because that's where people are going to connect with you through your flaws, through a simple story like, oh, man, I forgot to pay that bill and my power got shut off and what a hassle it was to go down. Those kinds of stories are where you make friends. Um, Not telling them or trying to convince them you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, but maybe the dumbest (laughs) or the awkwardest (laughs) or whatever. So uh, that's how you connect with people. Um, is to be genuine and not be afraid to share your feelings and uh, to share a moment that happens at home that really touches you with a pet or or your like today you know going to AUM and and seeing Master Thespian there and uh, but most of all seeing show stand up when it was time to applaud the honor students that was great to be there yeah you know those are the things that matter the most to me. Having, you know, walking my daughter down the aisle, having been begging for a buck in a gas station, Joey, you are certainly smart enough to know how it must have felt to know that I'd rebuilt my life to the point where I was able to help make her dream wedding possible. And um, that felt so good, you know, to get that, the the stories that, that uh, Jay Quellen and, and Dana the gifts from the kids, that kind of stuff. Um, that's what really matters, you know? Well, and I love these stories. I think the audience does, but I personally love them uh, because it does teach me a valuable lesson. I grew up here. I have, and I'd like to, I, sometimes in my head, I'm like, I'd like to go on and have a following, have a good career, but... Well, you do now. You have a following now. Exactly. But this place, in the last year or two, started to realize this place, though it's a capital city, is a very humble place, but there are amazing people and amazing stories around every corner. Mm-hmm. And stop, the way I'm thinking to myself, is stop being in your own head, a-hole. <laughs> Start uh, looking around and actually meeting and connecting with people, and that's what I've tried to do with this show. Sometimes it's just pure silliness. Sometimes it's like tonight where we share stories. Oh, sure. I mean, the whole um, nine-year-old fourth grade thing. Right. Believe me, do you think we're the only ones that are inflicted with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, everybody has that, and you got to keep that. Yes. you got to be that able whimsy. to do that. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I really think if you lose the ability to do that, that's when you start to die. I don't want to die. Right. So why are you still smoking, a-hole? <laughs> <laughs> it's the last of my vices. What can I tell you? Well, I mean, I I don't know. I sit back and I wanted to do this tonight. And it just, it really did amaze me, like, how apropos this album was. I was shocked at, like... Well, Dennis maybe didn't follow his own advice, mm-hmm. but the idea of the grand illusion of fame and fortune and chasing that dream, it's the type of dream you choose. And you just said it, that perspective of begging for a dollar to now having rebuilt your life and being able to 
uh, not only go to your daughter's wedding, but be an integral part of it. and To be wanted there when there was a time when nobody... Joey, I told you about all the TV coverage my first DUI got. I'm not proud of this. I was. It got so bad for me that I got two in one weekend, and it never made the news. That's mm-hmm. how... That's how far I had fallen. The, I wound up in jail twice in the same weekend, and nobody cared. Well, man, we only just scratched the surface. Yeah, in a way we have. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for staying another hour. Thank you for being with us. very fast. Yeah, it does fly by. But I, I really appreciate sharing these stories and, uh, sure. and everything you've taught me over these years. you got a good career in front of you. Let's hope.